0: Greetings, greetings, greetings. Today's read is going to be an article about the Black community, which I am absolutely a part of. And I always find articles interesting that lead with the Black community as if we are a monolith, which we're not. But we do have experiences that are specific to us as a community of people, not unlike how Asians are referred to as Asians when there's Chinese, Vietnamese, um, Japanese and so on. Um, just like how there's Jewish people that are um generally people think of Jewish people as just European, but there are definitely uh Ethiopian Jewish people who don't get the same treatment by um European people. They focus <laughs> on European Jews. And I heard that there was a new um, law fighting anti Semitism. And that's wonderful. Um, I would love if the government finally one day came up with a law that addressed anti Blackness because the Black community as a whole, we definitely see that um, occurring directed at Black people, but there hasn't been a specific law. When a law addresses Black people, it addresses everybody. It doesn't get specific. And we need specifics like anybody else does, like the anti-Asian bill, this new anti-Semitic law. Anti-Black people need specifics. Anywho, this headline um, is how Black communities cope with trauma triggered by police brutality. And it's on the www.msn.com site under the conversation headline let's get into it before i read this article i wanted to be understood from a member of the black community myself that police brutality is not just the boys in blue as they're known of course, there are women, um, police women, who have who have committed anti-black crimes against the black community in America. Uh, remember, I forget the lady's name. We don't we don't hear the perpetrator's name as often we hear as often as we hear the victims' names. Um, but the woman who said that she got off on the wrong elevator um, floor and went inside the man's house and the black man's house and um shot him to death and um amber something or other was her name um and then we have people who are affiliated with the police we know the three males who chased down one black man while he was jogging and taped it and enjoyed it and shared it with their friends and when the police came there they knew that those men had committed murder but they didn't arrest him until there was a large outcry um more recently there was just just this month or last month there was the young man on the train um in New York City who was murdered on purpose by a Marine. A Marine is a trained killer. Trained killer. And he committed murder and he wasn't arrested either until there was outcry. Um, police brutality is not just, again, the boys in blue. It's everybody affiliated with them, those who commit anti-black hate crimes. The officers who don't say anything when they see it happening the um, administrative uh, staff members who don't do anything until there's a large public outcry, the court system, the judges, um, the people who agree with them and show their agreement by raising millions of dollars to support anti-Blackness. That's all involved in the trauma of anti-black police brutality and that's the experience that um black people go through in america when police brutality is allowed encouraged um part of the foundation of the actual country um, so, yeah, I'm about to get into the article. The title again is How Black Communities Cope with Trauma Triggered by Police Brutality. And the article is started out, you see a picture of Tyree Nichols, and it's a portrait of him at the entrance of the church where his funeral was held in Memphis, Tennessee, this past February 1st, 2023. The release of footage showing the brutal beating of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police and protests in Atlanta in 2023, renewed public debate on the issues of police brutality and police reform. For some people, seeing is believing, and the circulation of videos documenting police violence is valued as a tool of accountability. But for many in the black community, which studies show is disproportionately affected by police brutality, Viewing videos of and having conversations about police violence can have several adverse effects, including psychological distress and trauma. What is trauma? The American Psychological Association defines trauma as any disturbing experience that results in significant fear, helplessness, disassociation, confusion, or other disruptive feelings intense enough to have a long-lasting negative effect on a person's attitudes, behavior, and other aspects of functioning. In her seminal book, Trauma and Recovery, The Aftermath of Violence from Domestic Abuse to Political Terror, published in 1992, Dr. Judith Lewis Herman notes that encountering a traumatic event permanently alters one's perceptions of safety. Reader's note right here. I don't accept that I don't accept that it permanently alters one's perceptions of safety because in a healthy therapeutic environment one that is culturally aware and responsive the brain can be trained to be healthy so that is false I don't buy into anything that's that's permanently altered or damaged about us as the Black community. Um, I digress. To prepare for a threat, these individuals develop intense feelings of fear and anger. These changes in emotional state are usually biological, as shifts in attention, perception, and emotion are normal physiological reactions to a perceived threat. This is known as our flight or flight response. Right. So trauma can make our physiological body react and change. Healing, healing can also change us for the better. So that should be included in articles such as this. Continuing, trauma can manifest itself in various ways. For example, on some occasions, traumatic events are known to lead to feelings of depression and intense sadness and episodes of helplessness. Additionally, trauma is known to increase one's state of hypervigilance or the elevated state of constantly assessing potential threats in the area. This state of elevated alertness often creates anxiety around dying and can have physiological impacts on the body, such as sweating, and elevated heart rate. So let's sit with that for a minute. When repeated trauma, it doesn't have to happen to us, but we've all seen whatever ethnicity, race, whatever that you are, we've all seen what has gone on in in the United States of America regarding black people for centuries. So that vicarious trauma can have a physiological effect on us. So when we hear that black people have high blood pressure or heart issues or stress, anxiety, depression, that can come from such trauma, absolutely, absolutely. And when there's no healing involved in it, it, it just resonates generation to generation. But thankfully, there are those who are doing the work for us to heal on individual levels as well as the larger community. It's not talked about as much. It doesn't get a lot of uh, mainstream support, but we don't need it to be. It needs to be an understanding that as Black people, we can heal ourselves. We have to be intentional about it. We have to be focused on it. We have to seek it. We have to seek it. Um, I've had my own experience with, um, school counselors and therapists and social workers who did not have, were not culturally aware or responsive and either try to demean how me and my family members felt, deny it, um, address it with all kinds of ways that weren't beneficial to us. But when I found a healthcare provider, because mental health is part of our health, just like you go to the doctor for anything, a broken arm, a broken leg, or if diabetes or a cold or a flu, anything, mental health is part of our health. So now that I've come into contact with holistically focused healthcare providers, I have a different understanding. I don't have a understanding that this is what it is and we're doomed. No. That's not true. But um this article is very general. It's very mainstream. It's a Eurocentric version of how police brutality affects us. Because we can't change what other people are gonna do, but we can change how we respond to it. Just think about that for a second. I'll be right back. The author of this article is a PhD by the name of Dion S. Hawkins, who has served as the Assistant Professor of Argumentation and Advocacy, as well as the Director of Debate at Emerson College since the fall of 2019. So he's coming from the perspective of an academic at a university that is a Eurocentric university. Not saying he doesn't, I mean, he's a PhD. He's an expert. He has the peer-reviewed, um, scholarly journal entries and all of that. He has all of the academic portion of writing. So I, I don't have a PhD, I have a bachelor's, but nothing to do with what he's talking about. I do though have a bachelor's in criminology and I do have the experience of working with, not only am I a member of the black community, but I worked with police officers at a university And I saw it firsthand. The anti-blackness was overwhelming on a personal level. And while I was in the position I was in, I advocated in ways that I could, but it became a lot and I had to leave the position. It was, it was a lot. And I wasn't, it doesn't even matter, but I wasn't like a high level position or anything like that. But I saw what I saw and I know what I know. So when he's talking about, um, and I had to heal from it. And so when he's talking about the effects of trauma that police brutality has on the black community, he's spitting facts. That fight and flight and the depression and all of that, that he's going to go into specific cases of it. But what I know is, We have options to heal. And hopefully, as I continue the article, he gets into those healing options because it's necessary not just to talk about it from a philosophical point of view and to, because he's um, in diversity, equity, and inclusion. He's a consultant in that area. He um, is into critical race theory. And you know critical race theory, as soon as people hear that, certain people not everybody but as soon as people hear that they shut down. I don't care about any of that. I don't care about the controversy and the political aspects of any of that. Our community needs healing, not just talking about healing, not just getting my um my own like payday off of talking about these things and my own um what do you call it? Well, sort of fame in the academic area that he probably holds because he holds that position. And that's all well and good because it has to be talked about. Intellectuals are needed. Black intellectuals are so necessary, but the action, the action and healing is an action verb. (laughs) Continuing, police brutality and black trauma. As a critical scholar... And this is Dion S. Hawkins. As a critical scholar and researcher, I use trauma informed interview techniques to better understand the intersections of police brutality and mental health in the Black community. My research focuses on those most affected, and that research highlights the human experience. Nice. There is always a face behind the statistic. Thus, my work typically uses critical race theory. As it focuses on the perspectives of marginalized people. And again, I don't buy into the marginalized people thing. Yes, it happens when Europeans are centered. Then everybody else is on the margins of a lot of things that happen in America. But guess what? Europeans aren't the only ones who exist. So when you get your health, your healing, your wellness, your perspective from an African-centered perspective, you're not marginalized. I'm the center of my story. But and I remember Toni Morrison spoke to that, too. I remember an interview she had where somebody asked her if she's going to write about white people or something like that. And she had her whole career centered on her people. We are not marginalized everywhere. We are marginalized when we're trying to fit into a place that, or a perspective that chooses to marginalize us. I ain't with that. Anywho, for example, my study published in the Journal of Health Communication explored how stories of police brutality are circulated within the black community and how these stories affect mental health. You hear my neighbors. I'm going to just keep on going, though. (laughs) Through dozens of interviews, I discovered three key ways in which trauma is triggered by incidents of police brutality that often appear in Black communities. Intense sadness, hypervigilance, and sense of helplessness. The excerpts below are direct quotations from members of the Black community whom I interviewed as part of a larger research project. This study was conducted in Washington, D.C. in 2018, but its findings are still relevant as it reveals how police brutality directly fuels trauma in the Black community. Because of research protections and protocol, pseudonyms are used and no other identifying information can be published. One, intense sadness. When asked about feelings after viewing videos or images of brutality, Every interviewee indicated intense sadness as the primary emotion. This sadness often affected how individuals went about their day, especially work-related activities. Darius, I remember I walked into work, face cut up, and people were like, what's wrong? What happened? I told them I had been in a fight. But really, I had been beat up by a police officer who assumed I was someone else. I appreciated them asking me if I was okay, but I wasn't really comfortable telling them, you know? We had previous conversations that let me know they didn't really think Black Lives Mattered. After Philando, I had to take a sick day to recover. That's how sad I was, man. Chanel, Philando Castile, I was really sad. Philando was the boiling point. I cracked. I literally had to leave my desk at work and take a break. When I came back, my white coworkers told me I was overreacting because I didn't know him, which pissed me off. What they don't get is that Philando could be anyone in my family. It's not just Philando. It's that I fear my brothers could be shot in cold blood at any moment. That's why I was so damn sad. Hypervigilance interviewees also discussed their chronic fear of dying at the hands of law enforcement. In turn, this fear prompts a permanent state of hypervigilance or hyper alertness. Many members of the Black community constantly feel they are going to die if they encounter a police officer. Mary, whenever I see cops, I tense up. One time, cops pulled up to me when I was in a car and my friend looked at me with the straightest face and said, One of us is about to die. I was so shocked and I said, that's not funny, but he was serious. He really thought one of us was going to die. Luke, there is not a single time where I can sit in a car and hear a siren or see a cop light flash that I'm not fearful. I imagine it's like what soldiers feel when they hear anything that sounds like a bomb. When I hear sirens, I start to look around and hope that someone else is around because If I were to get shot, I would want someone to be able to tell the truth. People are straight up dropping at the hands of police. I never want to be in that situation. Corey, I'm always scared and alert, honestly. I walk around on campus and I use my iPad to listen to music. I always have my iPad with me. I'm afraid the police are going to see me holding my iPad and assume it's something else. And before I have time to explain what it is... I'm afraid I would be shot. I always have my headphones in too. I replay this terrible scenario in my head over and over again. A cop is yelling at me to stop, but since my headphones are in, I can't hear him and keep walking. He thinks I'm running away and shoots me in my back. Three, sense of helplessness. Adding to sadness and hyper alertness, many black Americans also feel they have little control over interactions with police and cannot change the outcome this is true regardless of their tone behavior or actions this is known as helplessness a known symptom of trauma lena it's a sad reality to accept that no matter how you dress how you talk a police officer will always judge you and think you're a threat i don't think we have control over if we're going to get beat or not Black folks could literally read a How to Survive book and do every step, but cops would still find some reason to make the situation worse. We are always in a catch-22. If we talk too much, we are talking back. If we talk too little, we are suspicious. I do everything in my power to avoid cops. Listen, someone broke in my house, and I refuse to call the police. I'd be damned if I called the police because I think they would have assumed I was the robber and shot me. Reader's note. I heard of a story, my coworker told me about it because I don't, I consciously avoid and purposely avoid the news. I don't watch it daily. I'll look it up and I'll see the, just be aware of what's going on on the outskirts. But I don't watch, I don't sit and just watch the news. But she told me about a young boy, 11 years old recently, who called the mother Called the mother, called the police to help his mother in the situation, and when they came in, they shot the little boy in his house, and then there's Brianna Taylor who got shot in her house, um, a Tatiana, I forget her last name, who got shot in her house. <sighs> Then the, the man who was shot, um, Amber Geiger, that was her name, the police officer who shot the man in in his house. He was just sitting there, I believe, eating ice cream. And these are the stories we hear about. So yeah. Calling the police is not always the first um option for black people. Try to not. And so in my time working in the police department, um, my concerns about um, police were confirmed from the training that I experienced, from the conversations that I overheard and was involved in myself, from the, the, the remarks, from the different reactions that the officers had when they were dealing with different students. White students got the benefit of the doubt way beyond what they should have. And black students got immediate punishment, immediately dealt with. Even people who were just visiting campus, it it depended on your race, how you were treated. If anybody had anything to say about you and you were black, oh, you were dealt with immediately. Banned from campus, um, your ID taken. I'm going to share a, a personal story. I was in the police department um, looking at the cameras. I saw somebody around the police department taking pictures. It was an old white man. He was. You could tell he wasn't part of the university. So I kept telling the officers who were on duty there's just there's someone around the department taking pictures. Finally somebody went out. First they were like, "Oh, yeah, we see him. It's okay, whatever." Finally I'm like, "But this is not how you generally handle other people who are look suspicious. He's suspicious. He's taking pictures around the police department." So finally they went out and they they just asked him um some questions. Didn't ask for his ID. I watched the whole thing on camera. Didn't ask for his ID. Just had a conversation with them, And he said, oh, he just likes to take pictures and such and such. And they just were like, yeah, but be careful because this is the police department. So you don't want to just, like, just a casual conversation with him. Another time, this man, shirt off, walking in the middle of the street, white man, was nearby the dorms. And just was really suspicious. He was acting weird. And they just did not arrest him, did not just like helped him get to a safer space. That's what they did for him. Anybody else got arrested, had their IDs, wanted to know why they were like fully interrogated. And black people have been banned off of the um, campus that I was working on. So I witnessed this, the differential treatment. That's not police brutality that is physical, but it's still police brutality because you're treating people differently according to their black or whiteness. I witnessed it. I saw it. Even in a training that I went to that was speaking specifically to... Um mass shooters or active shooters rather and the police department america in general loves to take statistics by race everything is about race everything everything people will try to say race don't matter and at the same time have all these statistics by race but when we were talking about the shooters they never said they said possibly male, but they would never say white male. All the other statistics that were talked about, whether it was talking about gangs or whatever, poverty or certain environments or this neighborhood is that and this neighborhood is that, race was involved. But when it came time to active shooters, and we know the highest percentage is white males, Yes, there have been others, but the highest percentage is white males, and none of that was written anywhere in the training. That's that BS, and I've witnessed it. And no, I'm not a PhD, in the same way that this author is, and I respect his his studies because he's interviewing these people and just giving their, you know, giving light to their stories. Um. But. It's just, it's just a lot to deal with because even as I'm speaking to you, you can hear how much it bothers me. And that is something that I work on because I can't walk around holding their ignorance, their racist, their anti-Black racist behavior inside of me. So I release it in different ways, but I'm also not in denial of it. I will never deny what America has done and continues to do to Black people in the name of anti-Blackness. And again, where is our my point is where is our anti black hate crime bill law where is it civil rights all that fighting that was done even before civil rights to, to change the things that have been changed the 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 jim crow laws the black codes the um all of that There has never been a specific anti-black hate crime bill or law, and we need one. We need one. Uh, The last person that he shared her story surrounding police brutality is a woman named Virginia. She said, every time I see a video, I feel an intense sadness. It feels like you are in the world's worst cycle, I guess. Some kind of sick joke. It's like, damn, it happened again? Like nothing is ever going to change. Things may look like they're getting better. But then, even when they are arrested, the sadness continues. That article ended, as I kind of knew it was going to end, with just talking about trauma. And there's no resolve in that. There's no there's no point in it. We could talk about trauma all day. We can talk about it recurring all day. I love the fact that people get active. Those who march, those who work within the system to fight against anti-blackness, but we need a specific anti-black hate crime bill. We need one. In addition to that, the healing aspect, we don't have to just sit around and just eat ourselves into oblivion or have promiscuous sex to avoid it or use drugs or use drinking or have volatile relationships or have dysfunctional families or have dysfunctional associations, we can work on our healing. And that's not an option that we talk about enough that is talked about enough. Um, So I went looking for an article that dives into healing. And I found this article on Psychology Today, www.psychologytoday.com. It was written by Eric M. Brown, PhD, Healing from Within. And the title is On the Healing of Racial Trauma, Five Themes to be Mindful of in the Healing of Racial Trauma. Again, it's not specific to Black people. It is general. And that's where I have my issue with a lot of people who want to quote unquote help Black people because Black people's help tends to involve everybody. But it gets specific when it comes to say that anti-Asian hate bill, right? It got real specific, real quick. It gets specific when dealing with anti-Semitism, right? Real specific, not everybody. We're going to deal with this group of people and, and what they're growing, going through and the violence that's being put upon them. But when it comes to anti-Blackness, anti-Black hate crimes... There's no specific anti-Black hate crime law or bill, and we need one. So getting into this article where he includes everybody, there are some helpful tools that Black people can tap into. And it was uh, published on June 1st, 2022. And the key points of the article are racial trauma has long lasting effects on the lives of persons of color. Experts have outlined ways to begin the process of healing racial trauma, and the healing of racial trauma may best occur in a growth-fostering community with others who share one's racial identity. That is definitely key. The recent mass killing of black bodies in Buffalo, New York, and the shooting at a Taiwanese church have been yet the most recent reminders that the bodies of persons who are racial and ethnic minorities in the United States are not safe. The effects of such killings and other acts of violence on racially minoritized persons are far-reaching and often impact their mental and emotional well-being. Such events often have a lasting mark on the lives of persons of color. Monica T. Williams, a psychologist and expert on race-based trauma and stress, defines racial trauma as the cumulative traumatizing impact of racism on a person who is an ethnic minority which can include individual acts of racial discrimination combined with systemic racism and typically includes historical, cultural, and community trauma as well. The experience of racial trauma can cause feelings of anxiety, depression, and trauma symptoms such as fear, hypervigilance, anger, and suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Although recent tragedies have heightened our awareness of racial trauma, The literature is still emerging on ways that counselors and other helping professionals can assist in the healing of wounds created by racial oppression. Most counselors and therapists have no training on how to address racial trauma in the lives of their minoritized clients. Fortunately, experts such as psychologist Dr. Tamma Bryant, have begun to suggest several themes that should be explored in the healing of racial trauma. Validate feelings. It is imperative that the feelings and experiences of racism and oppression of the client be validated. This will entail the willingness to broach the topic of racism repeatedly in the course of counseling. Many persons who are racial minorities and live, work, or go to school in predominantly white environments have had their experiences of oppression question. This may have caused them to wonder if they are too sensitive, or they may begin to downplay or minimize racist experiences. Therefore, counselors and other helping professionals may need to give voice to their pain. The validation of one's experiences of racism may best come from others who share the client's racial identity. Affinity groups, persons who share the same identities or interests, can be developmentally important particularly for minoritized persons working or going to school in predominantly white environments. Another way to validate one's experience is through reading literature. For my black clients, I often recommend reading black authors such as Nora Zeal Hurston, Imani Perry, James Baldwin, and Eddie Gloud, who adeptly describe the struggles of black life in the midst of white supremacy, um, yeah, in the midst of white ideology there's nothing supreme about that type of ignorance at all. As someone once said, we read to know we are not alone. Externalize the oppression. The second step is to externalize the oppression, letting the person know that some of the most vexing aspects of their struggle are a result of repeated experiences of racism at both interpersonal and systemic levels. As psychologist Dr. Carlton Green has noted, the sickness lies within the racist systems in which they live, work, and go to school. White ideology is as insidious as any virus and create mental health struggles that impinge upon the lives of persons of color. Therefore, counselors will need to help cultivate what has been called a critical consciousness and awareness of ways in which power and privilege have shaped their lives and their everyday experiences. The counselor may need to provide psychoeducation around the effects of racism in all of its forms. Body care. Over the past 20 years, experts have stressed that trauma resides in the body and not simply the mind. Therefore, racially traumatized persons will need to engage in activities to soothe and heal their nervous systems. Being in nature meditation, prayer, singing, and many other activities that are important to many cultural groups may prove essential in the healing of one's body. It may be helpful for one to view their racial trauma as they would a cancer. They should treat themselves with the same level of consideration, compassion, and attention they would as if they had been diagnosed with a life-threatening illness. It is true that one cannot self-care their way out of oppression, yet Great attention will need to be given to one's mental, relational, and spiritual development by engaging in life giving practices, celebrating one's heritage. Third, it is important to identify cultural strengths and supports from which the person can draw in order to resist internalizing experiences of oppression. I have found it helpful to have clients talk about what they enjoy about their ethnic group, their community. And their family. Again, it will be important for racially traumatized persons to be a part of communities of people from their racial background that celebrate their cultural heritage and the advancement of their people. These groups may be tied to professional interests, a religious community, or a common hobby. Re-narrating one's story. Finally, It's important for persons to understand their experience as being embedded within the larger story of racism experienced by one's ethnic group. We need to understand that our pain is a part of the collective pain of our people. We need to know we are not alone. One significant aspect of this re-narration may derive from engaging in activism toward racial justice, such as voter recruitment, or bringing about greater public awareness of issues related to discrimination. This may help a person feel empowered and hopeful that they can contribute to a better tomorrow for future generations. Counselors and therapists who work with racial trauma will need to be equipped with evidence-based trauma treatments. Along with these treatments, counselors will need to help clients connect to the components of their culture and their heritage that foster resilience. Given the ongoing nature of racism, the healing of racial trauma can be a lifelong process. Fortunately, we have the resources to heal. Ashe.